gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. I am so excited today to be talking about exploration and discovery, to invite you along with NASA to join us on It's Rainmaking Time to look at the space program, which was started in, I said I was not going to say when it started because it's a year before my birth, 1958. Thank you, Eisenhower, for forming NASA. NASA is here today to talk to us about their new technologies that they're using to bring new vehicles into space. Yes, I know you thought NASA was dead or quiet or that we're not going to be able to find out anything really interesting because they covet all that classified technology. I know many of you out there think that NASA is keeping the actual space frontier from us, but in fact, NASA is still active, still alive, and bringing in a new space program, actually a new space launch system. And we have the assistant program manager of the space launch system with us today, Sharon Cobb. Now, she is at the NASA Marshall Space Flight Center, and she is a rainmaker at NASA. And one of the things I like about her after talking with her is that she's very humble. She's humble, she's kind, she's creative, and she has a fabulous team working with her on what's happening next at NASA. Now, for those of you who feel that NASA is coveting classified technology that we don't have access to, that's fine. But we're not going to focus on that today. We're going to focus on all many of the technologies and exciting things going on at NASA that are available to the American people and to the world. And I want you to consider that one of the things that makes space so exciting is that we are all part of space. We are space. We live in space. Yes, we're on Earth, but we're sitting in space. And when you think about that, as Sharon says, space belongs to all of us. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Sharon Cobb from NASA to its rainmaking time. Good day. Thank you, Kim. It's wonderful to be here. I'm just so excited (laughs) that you decided to come and that your team is here with us today and I'm really honored, and I would like to tell the public just a a minute of how inviting you came to be. I was talking to a dear friend of mine, one of my first backers, Yolandi, in Washington State, and and she was giving me some guidance. You know, I, I hope that all of us have coaches that help us get through our challenges in life, and it's rainmaking time has gone through its own challenges, and I said, what do you think I should do for inviting who's next? She said, what I would recommend is getting quiet, going into prayer, and asking God, God, who would you have me invite to its rainmaking time? And of course, I'm open. I'm a connected person. I'm a spiritual being. So I sat in my chair, and I did that very thing the next morning. I didn't really expect to get anything at that moment, because you don't always get the guidance the minute you ask for it. But apparently, on demand was the following sentence. Why don't you call NASA and ask them how their new, her, their new space program's going? And I thought, that's wild. <laughs> and I got a few other things, too. But we're here, and I'm delighted that I listened. And being receptive is part of exploration and discovery. We're all part of the space frontier. And I'd like to ask Sharon to talk a little bit about, first, your background, Sharon. And I hear you've been with NASA 27 years, longer than most marriages. <laughs> Well, it has been a while, but it's been an exciting time. 
I started out my career at NASA as a materials scientist working on experiments um, that we would eventually fly on the space shuttle and on the International Space Station. Um, the amount of information and what we can learn from exploring space and doing experiments um, and journeying and venturing out into space is just amazing. And so it's been a really exciting career for me, um, first to be a part of that from a, a research scientist standpoint, and now to be working on the space launch system, which will send explorers and cargo into space to places that we've never been before. So it's an exciting time to be at NASA. There's a misconception out there that we're no longer doing human space flight, but that couldn't be further from the truth, Kim. We're here in California today to visit with some of the people that are actually helping us build that rocket. It really is America's rocket. We're, we're building this rocket in 30 different states across America. There's over 225 companies that are help us building it. So it's, it's a great time to be at NASA, and it's an exciting time to be a part of the space program. Can you talk a little bit about what it was, some of the parts of what's different about this rocket versus other shuttles and how is the technology different? Because the reason I'm asking you this, Sharon, is not only just because it's interesting, is because a lot of people out there are saying, look, we don't even need to burn fuel to get us into space. Why does NASA do something that doesn't require burning fuel? What's your take on that and what's your experience of what's going on with this new vehicle? Well, we're building this new vehicle to take advantage of a lot of the safe and reliable technology that NASA has already built, for example, for the shuttle program. And we're only building the new technologies that we have to have for obsolete technologies that are no longer viable or to include and improve technologies that we have currently today for manufacturing large parts and, and important vehicle components. So one of the exciting parts of this is that we already had uh, very powerful engines that get us off the ground that allow us to take advantage of hardware that, that taxpayers have already paid for and, and that are already existing. So that's an exciting part is to be able to use existing technology that is very economical and then design things like a core stage for this rocket that will allow us to use more fuel and to take us further into the space environment than we can do with the existing rockets that are around. There's a commercial um, sector out there that has a very capable rocket um, cadre. However, what we're building with the space launch system will allow us to lift 70 metric tons into space, which is more than any rocket can do right now. And we'll evolve that rocket to eventually be able to lift 130 metric tons, which allows us to take things like habitats and exploration systems so that we can potentially live and work in space on other planets or on other um, celestial bodies. Now, I know that someone would not normally ask you this because, you know, NASA's government and it's serious and uh, what goes on there is serious, but... Do you personally think there's something else out in space like any life? Well, you know, that's a question that I think everybody has dealt with in their lifetime. I think we'd be naive to think that there's no one else out there, that there's no other living um, whatever form it may be in. So I think it's an exciting opportunity that NASA has to allow us to venture out into the unknown and to discover things that we may not know about, whether it's microbial type life or something more complex than that, I think it's an exciting time for us to look out into the to the stars and see, see what we can learn. 
As a materials engineer, do you think that it's possible that there is advanced propulsion technology that maybe would eventually, even though what you're working on, what's being worked on right now is a, you know, an advancement, huge advancement, and also the scaling of it, you're able to do it for much less cost and get things done, which I can't wait till you talk about the 3D technology and some of the other technologies that you're working on. But do you think that eventually there will come a time and you're in my lifetime where we will be working with a different propulsion system that actually takes us away from fuel? Well, there are a number of propulsion systems that NASA is already working on, particularly for things like in-space propulsion. It takes a lot of lift to, to lift the mass that you need to get into space off of the Earth. But once you get out into space, you can use technologies such as solar electric propulsion, um, many other types of solar wind-type propulsion. Um, of course, there's nuclear propulsion that you can use on surfaces of planets. There's just regular solar propulsion, so solar arrays like you have on the International Space Station. So there's a lot of technologies that are either already in, in work or, or that we're doing research on now. So there's, there's a lot to be learned in the future, and we'll take advantage of those technologies as they mature. Can you talk a little bit about the 3D technologies that's helping you build the next rocket that you're working on? And would you also explain what 3D technology is? Because even though I've looked into it, I don't understand it. And I don't think a lot of people understand what it is, but a lot of people are excited about it, even though we don't understand it. What is it? Well, 3D technology is, 3D printing is something, a word that you hear in the news these days. And there's a lot of different types of 3D technologies. Some of them use plastic, some of them use metals. But it's basically taking a 3D computer-aided design drawing, a CAD drawing, and you can use that to maneuver around to build up a part, whether it be made from a plastic feed material or from powdered metal. One of the technologies that we're using on the space launch system is called centered um, laser melting. And so we take a bed of powdered metal and the computer uses a laser to melt those powders into a design and into a shape that produces a part. And this is much more effective. It's much more economical than doing it in the traditional ways where you had to cast a material and machine it and potentially even weld it. So with this 3D printing or centered laser melting technique, you can produce a part that takes a lot less time, is, takes probably 35 or 40 percent of the cost of what it would do, would cost to, to produce tradi the traditional ways. Um, and it also allows us to have stronger materials because you can eliminate those welding joints. So it's a technology that has a tremendous amount of potential. We are using it right now to, to build some test parts that we can test on the ground to ensure that this technology produces the level of parts that we need to fly and be qualified for flying in space. But it's an exciting technology that gives us a lot of potential for the future. Is there another technology that you can share with us that has come out of NASA that you, that you, I'm sure there's so many things that come out of NASA, it's hard to determine what to talk about, but are there a few things you can talk about? Well, one of the, the exciting things about working for NASA is it's not just about learning things in space, but all the technologies and all the um, things that we have to do to build the space launch system and other spacecrafts, things that we have built or learned in order to live in space. For example, on the space station, there's a lot of medical instruments and things that we've had to develop in order to learn how to monitor the health of the astronauts and how living in space impacts your 
bone density as well as other physiological features of living in space long term. And so there's a number of diagnostic tools that NASA has um, transferred to commercial industry here on the on the ground um, to allow them to take those technologies and develop them even further. One thing that's that's been around for a long time that we think of as part of our everyday life is the global positioning system, or GPS. We have them in our cars, we have them on our phones, but that's something that NASA was very instrumental in um, developing in order to do our mission. So NASA is, since its existence, been very strong in in wanting to make sure that the technologies that we develop are open and available for the taxpayers and for commercial um, industry to develop and and be able to use so that the benefits of space um, are not just in space but here on the earth as well. Ray Cronice, who was a uh, NASA scientist for 15 years at the Marshall Space Center, worked on uh, something called thermodynamic principles got a lot of value out of his work with NASA and has brought it into an understanding about the human body that is very different. One of the things I understand about Ray is that he noticed that the astronauts, when they came back from space, were had lost a lot of body fat. And one would say, oh, they're losing just simply muscle mass. But they actually were burning up fat. And he he figured out that they were burning up this fat because it was cold. It was very, very cold that there's a thermodynamic regulating system in the hypothalamus. And so what he did is he put himself on a cold program for six weeks, and I think he lost 50 pounds of body fat. And he developed this into basically a, a, a protocol that everybody, because since we, since we are now in a modern lighting technology, Modern lighting technology impacts our melatonin. It disrupts our day and nighttime sleep and our, our circadian rhythms. And, you know, we're all now in it. Modern lighting is part of life. But one of the things that we can do is that we can use this thermodynamic understanding that Roy Cronese got out of NASA. That's an example of a fallout or a benefit of somebody that, whether they're with NASA or not, if they've been with NASA, uh, can bring something to humanity that's really needed. So the whole concept of calorie regulation and counting calories and whether you should have this or that didn't make any sense. Anyway, that 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 discovery went on and has been further and further developed, and there's more and more evidence for it. But uh, I wanted to find out a little bit about your 27 years of being at NASA. You have seen great things, and you have been part of great uh, you have been in the midst of great, sad, catastrophic things that have happened, uh, tough challenges and tough events at NASA. What is your sentiment about, I guess, living 27 years in an organization and in a culture uh, and what it's like? And is the culture different than when you first started? I, I'm sure there's pressure on you to say, yes, it's better and all that. But do you find that, do you find that today that it's there are there's more lightness, that creativity is abound? Is there more exploration and discovery? Can, do people feel they can cross-pollinate their, their expertise? Do you feel like that's gotten better? That's a very good question, Kim. 27 years is a long time to stay at one place, but I have to tell you, it is just an exciting place to work, and I have had incredible opportunities. Um, when I first started out, of course, 
it's hard to believe, but we had no internet. Um, our communication was limited to the telephone or walking down the hall. Um, so I'm showing my age here. <clears throat> but um, We both are, because remember, NASA started a year before I was born, so we're not going to give true. that. Go ahead. Um, so while I'm not sure how much the culture has changed, there, there obviously are new technologies that have been brought to bear that allow us to do our jobs much differently. It allows us to share information. It allows us to be much more collaborative than we used to be. So it's, it's a great time because there is so much knowledge and we are able to tap into that. We're able to, to access that from experts within the country, not just at NASA, and from our fellow employees across other NASA centers. So the, the world is, is very different than when I started. The morale at NASA is always something that is, is kind of a roller coaster. You have highs and lows. Along with that excitement, there are always disappointments. We have programs that come. We have programs that get canceled. So it's very important for us to remember that this is the taxpayers' program and that that NASA is funded by the taxpayers and that what we're doing has to benefit them. So we we try um, at all times to, to stay excited about what we're doing and to stay positive, uh, and we're able to um, continue to do great things and, to, and and the space launch system that we're working on right now will be one of those. We'll be able to open new doors of exploration and and bring new information and new knowledge to, to folks on Earth. So it's it's an exciting time, but it always has been an exciting time. There's just, I can't imagine a better place to work. And in fact, NASA has been been rated as one of the number one places um, in the country to work. So it's not just me. Um, I think it's a, a sentiment that we all we all share. It's a great place to be. Now, you have had some background of working with a congressman uh, at the U.S. Uh, congressman fellow at the U.S. House of Representatives. And there you were a communications liaison. Talk a little bit about that. I'm sure your job was way more robust than what I just said. Because, you know, I want to say something to the public, too, which is that this interview happened on such short notice. I can't even tell you when 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 the great one upstairs puts things in place, you don't have a lot of dancing time to figure everything out. And, you know, so there's been very little time to prepare for this. So for those of you, please bear with us. Talk a little bit about your work with Congress, your liaison work, your communications work and how that has impacted you and strengthened you to do what you're doing today at NASA. Well, that was another tremendous opportunity I had as, as being a part of the space program. Um, I was able to spend a year working um, for a local congressman in his office in Washington, D.C. And what it helped me understand is that it is so important for um, the people that that fund the space program to understand why we're doing it and what is important and what they will get out of it. Because Congress, the president... Our senators and congressmen are very instrumental in determining what programs are funded and what programs are developed for the future. So it's important both from a constituent to be supportive of those programs as well as for Congress. So it's always important for us at NASA to be able to communicate the importance of what we're doing, um, not just to the congressmen, but also to the general public. So this was a wonderful opportunity um, for, for me to work closely with the congressman to help him understand what it was that we're doing at NASA and why it's so important for those of us um, here in America to be leaders in the space exploration program. Do you think that there's going to come a time in NASA's existence as a culture 
where NASA will be more comfortable with revealing more findings out in space? Uh, or do you feel like uh, it has to stay most of it within NASA? What's your feeling on that? Well, that's another interesting question. One of the one of the things that's in our charter is to is to share the information that we gain in any of the research that we do. So one of the things that people should understand is that as a researcher, when you gather information and when you're doing experiments, maybe based on photographs or information that come from telescopes or whether it's information or research done on the human body on the International Space Station, the researchers and the principal investigators are given a year to delve into that information, to understand it, to study it, to make sure that the conclusions that they draw are correct. And then after that year, they are allowed to publish that information so it goes into the public sphere so other people can learn from that information as well. So I think it's kind of a misconception that NASA's out there trying to hide the information. One of our one of our missions and one of our goals as an agency is to inform and to share that knowledge with the public. So um, we do that in many ways, um, but we do allow the researchers to have a little bit of time to try to understand the data and the information that they are receiving before it's published. Are you, uh, I just want to touch on this one other thing with regard to information. Have you, have you, do you have a classified clearance yourself? I do not. You do not. Have you ever worked with anybody that did? I have. Mm -hmm. And is it, do you feel that, because I've never talked to somebody on camera that actually worked with other people that had classified clearances. Is it, is it very delicate? Is it difficult? Is there pressure on you in terms of how you have to operate? Just if you could share something about it without revealing, obviously, the person's identity or the people's identity. But what's it like to work with people that have a classified clearance that's, let's say, pretty high? Uh, well, obviously, you have to respect their position and the amount of information and, and the knowledge that they have. But just as any um, sensitive information that anybody um, carries around with them, they have to protect it and they have to be conscientious and careful about um, how they share it and the context of comments that they make in meetings. So um, there's pressure, but there is for anybody that works in a, um, a position where you have knowledge that may not be knowledge that the general public has, and, and there's a time and place for sharing that. Um, one of the, the things that we do at NASA is collaborate with other agencies. So many of the people at NASA that have clearances are working with other government agencies, and so they're just um, things that, that it's in the best interest of the country um, to be protected until that knowledge is needed. That's, a, that's an interesting and uh, useful answer. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about Richard, Sir Richard Branson and uh, Virgin Galactic and the work that Virgin Galactic is doing to uh, commercialize the opportunity to go, is it suborbitally into space? Um, yes, his, his work is. Talk a little bit about your understanding of that from being inside NASA and what you think about it. And also talk a little bit about the also programs that NASA has, some commercial programs to go into space like SpaceX and Orbiter. Um, NASA has several programs where we're trying to encourage and help um, commercial industry be successful in um, developing routine access to space. It's very important for us that they are successful so that we can move on um, to doing those difficult problems of going beyond low Earth orbit. Um, people like Virgin Galactic, SpaceX, um, Orbital Space um, Corporation are all taking the knowledge that they have and the, the technologies that they have developed and putting those to the best use of being able to develop space as an industry, as a commercial, commercially viable um, entity. 
So people like Virgin Galactic, um, there's there's many things that they've been able to do very economically. Um, we have to make sure that there is a business base for commercial industry and hopefully as it becomes more routine and safer and reliable that will develop and there'll be many more opportunities for them to be involved with it. Um, SpaceX and Orbital are currently delivering cargo to the International Space Station and then there is a qualification process going on where they will eventually um, be delivering our astronaut crew to um, the organizations, um, the International Space Station and, and the cargo that's needed for that. Can you talk a little bit about SpaceX, what it is, and also what Orbiter is? I, I know you talked about that they're also going to be delivering cargo back and forth to the space station, but is there anything else? Like like Virgin Galactic said that one of the things they're going to do, aside from offering these commercial flights for $250,000 a person, but they're also going to help deliver, I guess, small satellites, or they have a way to deliver them cheaper, getting smaller satellites into space. Have you heard that? Well, many of these commercial corporations are, are their launch facilities, so they have rockets um, that allow them to be able to launch cargo, whether it be cargo to the space station or uh, commercial satellites. Um, because they can do this very routinely and they're lifting small masses, um, they can do this um, very economically. One of the things that NASA has focused on is not those delivering those small payloads, but delivering large masses to space, things that we can't currently do with the commercial capabilities that exist. So there is absolutely a, a market for that. Being able to deliver those satellites um, is very important for the country um, and for many commercial entities. So I think there's room for, for both organizations, and they both serve a very important purpose. I would think that eventually in time that they'll work together more and more actually to help perfect and also to share new findings that each finds. I know that everything is so competitive in the world, uh, although uh, so you know some things Virgin may not want to talk about, but it would seem that it's in the best interest of everybody that there be a cross-pollination of knowledge, and I hope that that goes on. Uh, actually, if you don't mind, let me also tell you that one of the things that we're doing at the Marshall Space Flight Center and at some of the other NASA centers is we're sharing that knowledge. There's a process called the Space Act Agreements where corporations, whether it's SpaceX or Virgin Galactic, can, can come to NASA and ask for their expertise on modeling or design or even using some of our space facilities, um, for our testing facilities that we've used over the years. We've been in the business for a long time and we've learned a lot. We've learned a lot of lessons. We have a lot of knowledge and so we're able to share that with these commercial companies and they are able to, to come to us for, for questions that they have. Um, I was going to also ask you if you've feel that at any time, since so you've been at NASA 27 years, do you think that the command and control culture of, of exploration and discovery is something as serious as space and, and, and advanced technology, that the command and uh, control culture and the need to know culture will ever disappear as part of the ground or the paradigm of, a, of an organization like NASA? Well... <laughs> You're full of good questions, um, as always. <laughs> Thank you. Um, command and control is an interesting um, phenomenon. I think it happens in any industry, whether you're protecting your uh, marketability, whether you're protecting trade secrets. There is always some level of command and control and safe use of information. So um, I think at NASA, to the extent that we can, um, e except for the ability to be able to protect our astronauts, um, 
I think we share um, every every kind of information that we can. Um, obviously, when you have designs, you don't you have um, export control regulations that you have to live with under. So, um, as a country, it's in our best it's in our best interest to protect against some things and make sure that we protect those um, important designs and things that that we um, want to make sure that um, protect our crew and and have a safe the the most optimum chance for a safe delivery to space. Sharon, we're going to go to a quick break and we'll be right back with Sharon Cobb from NASA. For those of you that don't know very much about me, I'm the chief executive officer of the Rainmaking Company and I saw years into the future that one of the great ways to uh, to get more products and services and advance businesses into the world is to understand that businesses are are organic living things. Organizations are alive. They're alive with consciousness. And their consciousness lives in the paradigm by which business is done and procedures and protocols are set. And so when it comes to really uh, inspiring the most advanced new products and services that are going to help the greater good of humanity and this civilization, even on a planetary level, the first thing we have to know is that we have to know that whole systems need to be built into the center heart, the fabric of whatever it is that we're doing. What is whole systems? It means that if the finance side of what you're doing is not congruent with the actual technology that you're using, if your business process is not congruent with everything else that's going on, then you have a discordant organization and you have an organization that's actually not working in accord in synergy, all the different parts of it. So the paradigm by which the organization is founded directly impacts the circulatory system of information, the synergy by which people come together and work and deliver, the trust that gets built, the leadership, etc. And so the question is, how do you create an organization that can come up with the most amount of creativity and innovation, share knowledge, share information, and people work together and create the best output? And when I founded the Rainmaking Company, my interest was to be able to fast-track the delivery of solutions and discoveries for humankind, to actually build processes and protocols, and to bring in the correct kind of financing and contractual arrangements that were all in accord with each other. It's kind of like, why would you have an oil financier, somebody that is not interested in a piece of technology that could help the entire world, funding it? Because... Those are incongruent influences. So part of understanding whole systems and part of launching more exploration and discovery is putting this whole thing together, putting together a totally different type of contracts, totally different types of processes and protocols, and really establishing with people what it means to be in global systemic transition where we're in a fiercely competitive global society where there's tremendous distrust from country to country, a coveting of new knowledge, which is understandable, and yet what's needed for humanity is the release of it. So what I'd like to tell you all that are listening to this, if you would like my 34 years of traveling around the world to figure out how to fast-track exploration and discovery, how to fast-track new knowledge, get it to the world, products, services, and businesses, how they should be funded, why they should be funded, and how to protect them from the ground. 
Call me at 626-398-8652. I will come speak for any of you anywhere in the world in your organization and lay out my 34 years of groundwork. I've never told the public of its rainmaking time the deep work, the interest that I have, the calling that I have in this area, which is why I'm so excited to be talking to NASA today. And back to the show. Sharon. (laughs) Sharon, we're here. It's rainmaking time. What do you think about the the public not really knowing that NASA is still working on something? And why is it that we all thought NASA's gone or not really working on anything anymore? Well, I think there was a lot of confusion when the Constellation program was ended. And so while at that time we did stop the design that we were, were working on for what was called the Constellation program, which included the Ares launch vehicle and the Orion spacecraft, um, we we stopped that particular design and stepped back and looked at what is the most effective, safe, reliable, and economical way to build a rocket to do the kind of deep ex- space exploration that we want to do. So we looked at over 1,700 designs and came up with one that took the greatest advantage of the assets that the country already had for space flight and then looked at a way just to design the remaining components that we needed. So it's an, a great opportunity for us to, to do things in the most economical way, using the heritage hardware that's safe and reliable, and allow us to continue to fly. We've spent two years developing the design for this rocket. So while we may not have been launching a shuttle or a spacecraft, we have been working very hard. The Orion Space Program, which is the multi-purpose crew vehicle that flies on top of the rocket, We'll actually be doing a test flight in September of this year. So that's exciting for NASA to get back flying again and um, being able to take those next steps for space exploration. Have you ever met Harrison Schmidt? I have met Harrison Schmidt. Um, We had some wonderful celebrations um, at the Space and Rocket Center in Huntsville, Alabama. Um, And he came and and put some uh, moon boots in concrete. So we have a, a footprint of... Um, his boot that was on the moon um, there in Alabama, and he's just a fascinating man. It's it's wonderful to meet people who have a passion about what they do and have actually had the opportunity um, to, to spend their career researching and doing things um, like that that he was able to do. I can't imagine what it was like to actually be on the moon. He is really a big proponent of helium-3, uh, acquiring helium-3 and bringing it back from the moon, and he feels so strongly about it helping the people of this world. Are you familiar with Helium-3, and what do you think about it? I am vaguely familiar with it, probably just enough to be dangerous. <laughs> um, but what I will tell you is I think, I think I share his passion for the ability to be able to look at um, processing the materials that are on the moon or other planets or an asteroid and understanding what we can learn from it about how our planet was developed and learning how we can take those products and use them to the benefit of people here on Earth. So whether it's helium-3 or mining materials on the moon um, to, to build habitats, using the regolith to, to build bricks, to have radiation protection for astronauts that might be living on the moon if we were to go back to the moon, um, or just learning how to um, understand um, how we will 
learn more about other planets by mining a- uh, asteroids. Anything like that is, is tremendous knowledge for the country. Did you say mining asteroids? I did say mining I asteroids. I can't even fathom that. Talk about that. Mining an asteroid. The thing is flying. How are you going to mine it? It is, but NASA is full of bold missions and bold ideas, and what we want to do is go out there and lasso an an asteroid and bring it back to what's called a Lagrangian point. Seriously bold. Yes. Seriously Seriously bold. bold. Oh my God. Uh, You can need a really large rope to do that. So we have plans to um, grab a small asteroid, bring it back to a Lagrangian point where it takes much less energy to keep it in orbit. And then we can do things like rendezvous the crew with that asteroid and start looking at things like mining and learning how to do that kind of um, technique on an object that is flying through space. So it's it's an exciting, bold mission. But I, if if anybody can do it, NASA can do it. So we've got um, a lot of a lot of things in the work to plan that mission, and hopefully that'll be something you'll be hearing a lot more about in the near future. A lot of people are actually watching the asteroids and are very concerned we're going to be hit with one. And isn't there a, a like a near Earth impact part of NASA, or is that a different? organization? There is a group that studies um, asteroids, and we are tracking asteroids today to make sure that we understand where they are and where they might be in the future. And this is just one step in that process of being able to learn if we did have one that was um, coming too close to the earth for our comfort, would we be able to move it? Would we be able to have the propulsion ready to be able to um, connect with that asteroid and, and move its trajectory so that it didn't impact the earth. So there's a lot of research going on in that area um, and a lot of things to look forward to in the future so that we understand it better. I would think that we would need to be able to put a force field out there so that the thing like in tennis it hits the net it doesn't go over the net. Do you think that's possible? you're asking the wrong person. I'm, I'm, I'm not, um, I'm not I in charge of force field. I you were on the field. starship with me. <laughs> you're actually in this starship now. See, I get to ask those questions. <laughs> well, unfortunately, I'm not in charge of force fields. No? Um, you, not yet. Do you but, think they um, exist? Do they exist? Force fields? Where you, that may be a good technology. Just put a force field up there, right? You put a little holographic technology that says hello with a smiling face to the asteroid. It gets so confused. It doesn't want to go where it's going. What do you think? Kim, I think we need to hire you at NASA. I'm hired. I'm hired. I'll come speak for NASA anytime. I'll tell you all how to do this thing. I'd really like to take a moment to be with all of you, remembering the men and women whose lives were lost in the pursuit of space exploration. It is a perfect time to remember them and not to forget that space exploration and the business of discovery is risky. These people risk their lives, and they are, from Apollo 1, Virgil L. Grissom, Edward H. White II, Roger B. Chaffee, from Challenger, Krista McCulloch, Francis Dick Scobie, Ronald McNair, Mike Smith, Ellison Onizuka, Judy Resnick, Greg Jarvis, from Columbia, Rick Husband, Willie McCool, Kalpana Chala, Laurel Clark, David Brown, Michael Anderson, and Ilan Rama. We will observe a minute of silence in honor of these people. 
If anybody has been omitted from this, uh, our apologies are from it's rainmaking time and you are still included, your families and you know who you are. And speaking of honoring people, it is so often that we honor and pay tribute to people after they've passed on, and they're no longer able to receive the appreciation that we all feel toward them. And I think that we should start a new trend of acknowledging people while they're still alive in a big way. And what I'd like to do is to acknowledge Dr. Perry Spolter for the 40 years of dedicated hard work bringing new knowledge to the world about gravity, density, mass, and actually standing before giants and saying, no, it's that away. In fact, she is challenging Einstein's theory of relativity. She is standing before the giant of Newton and saying the law of universal gravitation is inaccurate. And she has taken a lot of ridicule and personal and professional attacks for 40 years because of it. She is the author of the book, Gravitational Force of the Sun. I'm not a scientist, and I know that scientists and mathematicians will be able to read it. And one of the things I love about her is that she's really committed to looking at experiential observation and real data. She's not seduced by theories. This is a very important time in history where we really need to be looking at the real data when we talk about things. Talk a little bit about Dr. Spolter's premises. What she says is that the theory of gravitation cannot explain the puzzling motion of the moon, that gravity is one of the unresolved mysteries of science. She says gravity is quantized. It's not just a Newtonian force. And my question after talking with her is, what if the science and math of Newton's law of universal gravitation and Einstein theories of relativity are inaccurate? Are we prepared to hear that? We better get prepared to hear that. And what if the current framework about density, mass, and gravity are also flawed at a paradigm level? For some, that's going to be really good news. For others, ah, we need to learn how to receive new knowledge and learn what we can do with it to better our planet.
What if gravity is not proportional to the quality and density of inert mass of a celestial body? All of this is revolutionary, scientific-altering paradigms. It's new knowledge that may or may not be ready for this civilization and the powers that be to hear this. But we invite you to receive Dr. Perry Spolter's work that represents 40 years of her life questioning the giants that have come before us. Please go to Dr. Perry Spolter. Her website is Perry, P-A-R-I, Spolter.com. And we wish to also thank her for stepping up to the plate and being willing to sponsor this interview with NASA. Thank you so much, Dr. Spolter, and thank you for all that you've done and all the hard years that you've worked. And I pray for you that the world is ready for you. And back to the show. Talk a little bit about radiation. I've always wondered, what is the Van Allen belt? Can you explain it to us? And how do we get our, our, uh, this, the space, the space men and women out to the station, to the International Space Station? How do we get out or through the Van Allen belt without dying? Well, there are a number of technologies that have been developed over the years that protect our astronauts, whether they're in a spacecraft or whether they're on the International Space Station. There are a number of different technologies. There are insulating materials. Materials are a huge part of being able to protect astronauts from ionizing radiation. Radiation belts or the Van Allen radiation belt is something that was discovered many, many years ago as a part of one of the first experiments that NASA did. That was um, when we flew... um, one of the first rockets, one of the things that we learned at NASA was it wasn't just about getting out off the Earth and into space, but it was about the science we could do while we were there. And there was an experiment on that first rocket that allowed us to look and do some detection of the radiation levels, and that's how the radiation belt was discovered. So it's something that we know is out there, and by understanding it better, we can understand better how to protect from it. But that is one of the things that we have to consider when we're talking about taking humans to Mars, because that will be a long-duration trip, and um, without the protective atmosphere um, around the Earth, we have to be careful to not expose astronauts to a dangerous level of radiation. So there are many things you can do. Water is a good absorber for radiation, um, and there are many materials that attenuate radiation levels. So there are a lot of things that we can do. Weight, of course, is one of those things that the more materials you put around something, the heavier it is, the more it takes to get it off the Earth. So just another one of those reasons we need a large rocket to be able to lift um, our next crew into uh, those long-duration exploration flights. Do you think that the the uh, development of the technology to help both with the shuttle and the rockets that went into space is, we're 50 years into NASA, right? Correct. So in 50 years, like when the first astronaut went into space, it was much less capable, the radiation protection technology, than it is now. Am I correct or am I incorrect? No, you're correct. But we also didn't know as much about the radiation levels as we do today. So those were very brave men. They There were a lot of unknowns and a lot of things we did not know about the impacts of long-duration flight on the human body. So the more we learn, the more we can protect and the safer our crews are. 
Do you happen to know anything? I just wanted to ask you this because I thought about it when I was flying that I've been hearing that there's uh, in some areas of the world when we're flying in our airplanes that there's more gamma rays getting through from space or more ionizing radiation. I wondered if you could explain to the public what a gamma ray is, why it's important to know what it is. And have you ever heard that we're experiencing more radiation up, you know, as we're even flying airplanes now? Kim, I'm afraid you're asking the wrong person. Um, The lab that I worked in when I started had a group that did gamma ray burst detection. And so we have a number of um, devices at NASA that are in space right now that are detecting those gamma ray levels. Um, Many of the spacecraft or the telescopes that we have are looking at um, what's the source of those gamma rays. But to be able to tell you what the levels are and how we're protecting humans from that it, you're just you're asking the wrong person i hear you mm-hmm. i hear you as sam guzik from guzik and associates said on the bit we did a piece on bitcoin and crowdfunding he said that's above my pay grade <laughs> it is but i'll tell you one thing we have definitely have experts at nasa and i will be happy to connect you with one of those for maybe one of your next that shows. would be fantastic that would be fantastic is there anything else that you would like to share that has to do with either NASA technology, NASA culture, the leadership, the com- or anything complex as well that you feel has not been said, uh, or besides the fact that people thought that the space program basically was retired, which I, I, I'm one of the people that thought that too. So I'm, I'm, I imagine that if I thought it was retired, probably many people thought it was retired. But is there something else that you would like to share on its rainmaking time? Um, Well, first, let me say it's just been a pleasure to be here, and your level of knowledge of NASA is so exciting. I wish um, many other people in the country um, were as knowledgeable and as excited about space exploration as you are. Thank you. Um, NASA is an exciting place to work. We have many missions, whether it's scientific exploration or human exploration. There are um, many opportunities for us to gain knowledge. We have a program that looks at improving aeronautics, being able to, to have airplanes that are much more capable. And so there, there are just a number of different facets of what NASA does. And I just invite people to, to go to the NASA website, www.nasa.gov, and do some exploration there of your own. There are many things that you can learn. There's opportunities for children to be engaged and to get excited about science and technology, engineering and math type applications. So NASA NASA does a lot um, to help improve life here on Earth, but we're also um, looking at ex- inspiring the next generation of explorers. So it's so important as a country that we keep kids excited about science and math so that as a country we're competitive. So NASA's very excited about our ability to be able to do that with some of the exciting missions that we do as well. I wanted to say one closing, uh, or really an opening closing comment, and that is that in my experience in business and in life and having talked to so many scientists and creative entrepreneurs and visionaries, that one of the things that would so much benefit an organization like NASA and other organizations that are committed to exploration discovery is is that is to consider the and I'm sure NASA's considered this but to consider the fact that once a piece of knowledge is known and you have evidence for this piece of knowledge in science that and let's say you have huge investment in infrastructure in that and then you build an industry around that and then 
a piece of new knowledge comes in and it disrupts that scientific discovery that was made earlier. And by bringing in that piece of new knowledge, it threatens that whole industrial complex because it renders that thing not as necessary anymore or not as useful anymore or that thing is not as economical, not as beneficial as it once appeared because when it came in, it was the thing of its time. Then this other thing comes in and poses a tremendous threat to what's happening over here, kind of like a parallel path. So the question, so to me, the, the way in which we transition both in economy and we transition and explore and actually open the space more of exploration and discovery is to be willing to retire what is considered scientific dogma and to be more open to new knowledge and solutions that may disrupt that very thing. So the question is, that's where the politics comes in, right? That's where, you know, like it's rainmaking time is not a political show, but everything we talk about, if it has to do with new knowledge or discoveries, could potentially disrupt things that already have an industrial complex. So you can't blame the people that have the industrial complex. They don't want to be taken out. They don't want to be at a loss. And it is about winning and losing at a certain time. So how do you deal with that transitional reality? And my view at this time in history is that if something comes in which renders your infrastructure obsolete or not as necessary or not as useful, and it could threaten you with hundreds and millions and billions or trillions of dollars, that organization or that group takes a position and becomes a player and a leader in the what's next and actually becomes part of that other thing and builds a transition system into that. Now, it all sounds like, oh, great, you know, we're going to lose billions of dollars. We're going to lose our infrastructure. That thing is, could potentially take out what we're doing. But the thing is, if you want to open up exploration and discovery even more, you open up that whole space. Yes, it's more threatening. Yes, it could be more dangerous for an existing organization. Look at what's happening with Bitcoin. Look at what's happening with a whole new banking system coming in. Let's look what's happening to a central, what's, what happens when you have a centralized economy. So the question is, how do you transition from where we are, invite in new exploration and discovery? invite in solutions that may not be part of our existing infrastructure and become a player and be part of it and part of the fortuitous, fortuitous nature of it and then take a huge leadership position in that. That is the question. And so I want to invite NASA and all the other space organizations and all the research and development and exploration and discovery companies that are out there to open up the space and realize that we're in a global systemic transition and maybe the fast track to new technology, cheaper technology, you know, being able to be the first ones there, it's competitive. We're not going to lose our competitive nature. We're competitive. People are competitive. I come from a competitive career in tournament tennis for 13 years. I'm very competitive, but the thing is, is that the competitiveness is like a background program in a human being. And it's like a resonant program. It's only called upon when it's needed and activated. But it doesn't have to like have the reign of everything. It doesn't have to drive everything. The question is, what is the place of the competitive program in our culture? 
That's the question. And that, I believe, is going to open up everything. It's going to help disband scientific dogma so that when we're wrong, when something's been inaccurate or it was considered wrong or it's no longer useful anymore because there's something else that has come in, instead of hating it, wanting to kill it, wanting to smash it, wanting to get rid of it, etc., we can invite it in and know that the more open we are in the scientific area to new knowledge, we know it's going to be disruptive, but we know how to deal with it. So I want to say that that's my little tidbit from the Rainmaking Company. I want to thank Sharon Cobb, Dr. Cobb, for joining us, who's the Assistant Program Manager of the Space Launch System at the NASA Marshall Space Flight Center. I want to tell you how much I appreciate you and how excited I am. I'm so glad I listened to the creator and uh, was open and receptive to having you here. And I hope that you will join us again, whether you're in Los Angeles or in another location. And thank you so much, you and your team. It's rainmaking time. Thank you very much, Sharon. Thank you, Kim. It's been a pleasure. And it's a wrap.